If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65, the second to last um, chapter in the book of Isaiah. An opportunity to use one of my favorite words and say that this is the penultimate sermon in our Isaiah series. We have one left after this one. Um, and we'll close out the year thinking on Isaiah 66. But our text for today is Isaiah 65, and which is closely joined to Isaiah 66, but there's plenty of it, uh, plenty to, to study here in this chapter. Uh, in a sermon that I listened to on this, this chapter of Isaiah, uh, a man named William Taylor said that this um, chapter poses and answers two of the most fundamental questions of humanity. Think about these questions. Who am I and where do I belong? Who am I and where do I belong? Or we could say, what is my identity and where is my home? These sound like questions we wrestle with maybe as children or in high school where we're not sure where we fit in or, or who we are. And yet there's a sense in which each day we're going through life trying to understand who we are and exactly where we fit in and where we belong. In answer to those questions, Isaiah 65 offers us two paths, what some have called two ways to live. One is the path of the person who rejects the Lord and rejects his ways and finds himself in a place where God is in fact his enemy. And the other path is of the person who follows the Lord and enters into his eternal home filled with God's presence. So these are the two paths that we might follow in life. The, the path of rejecting the Lord that leads to him rejecting us or the path of faith in the Lord that leads to eternal rejoicing. And Isaiah in this chapter encourages us to walk the path of faith in the Lord that leads to forever rejoicing in the new heavens and earth. It's our big idea and it's a bit bigger and longer than it is sometimes, so I'll say it a couple of times. Walk the path of faith in the Lord that leads to the forever rejoicing of the new heavens and earth. Walk the path of faith in the Lord, which is the answer to who am I? I am someone who trusts the Lord. Walk that path of faith in the Lord that leads to where I belong, to the forever rejoicing of the new heavens and earth. The force of this passage is then to either call those who are not on the path of trusting the Lord to turn and to believe in him. And for those who are in Christ, we are to be reminded of the home that will be ours forever. We see in the new heavens and the new earth, the home that our hearts have been made for. We see a place where all the brokenness brought into our world by sin is gone. We see a place uh, where where the, the Lord is never silent. And we are encouraged that though the way is narrow and the path is hard, the path of faith is the one that leads to our eternal joy. Therefore, Isaiah tells us, walk the path of faith in the Lord that leads to the forever rejoicing of the new heavens and earth. All of this assumes a, maybe an unpopular truth or one that we want to reject in our hearts, it assumes that the new heavens and the new earth that, is, that are described in the latter part of this chapter, verses 17 through 25, are in fact not the future home of all people, that not everyone will be there. 
the scriptures do not teach universalism. And that's clear here in Isaiah 65, 1 through 16. So let's read those verses to start with. Isaiah 65, and let's just read the first 16 verses. God's word says, and this is God speaking, he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the Lord, by, by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Let's think about this chapter in terms of what it reveals about the Lord. We'll see three things. First, verses 1 through 7, we see the Lord is ready and waiting for all people. The Lord is ready and waiting for for all people. Last week, we considered Isaiah's prayer where he looks back on God's great acts of salvation. He looks within at the sin of he and his people, and he looks up to the Lord, asking that he would act with power on their behalf. We know that, noted that his prayer is full of questions and even ends with two questions in Isaiah 64, 12. It says, Isaiah says, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? 
He asks God, why are you silent in light of all that we, your people, are facing? At this time of year, we often think about the years of silence between the prophecy given to Malachi and the announcements of the births of Jesus and John in the New Testament. We sang about it earlier. Did you notice that? What fear we felt in the silent age. 400 years. Can he be found? And while Christmas celebrates the fact that the silence has been broken by the coming of Christ, we still feel the silence of God from time to time. We wonder where he is and why he's not listening to the cries of our hearts. Barry Webb writes, the silence of God is a terrible thing. It mocks our prayers and makes our universe a frightening, forsaken place. But the truth, he says, is that God is not far away and never has been. God is not far away and never has been. And this is the truth that the Lord communicates to Isaiah and to us as he answers Isaiah's prayer in this chapter. That he is not far away, but he is always holding out his arms of salvation to all people. If you want to understand these verses, the first place to turn is to the divinely inspired commentary of Romans 10. Paul is arguing there in that chapter that salvation is equally for both Jews and Gentiles. He says in in verses 12 and 13 of Romans 10, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And one of the texts that he turns to to support this idea is Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. He writes there in Romans 10, verses 20 and 21, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Simply put, Paul says, verse 1 is about the nations, and verse 2 is about God's people. Taking then Romans 10 into account, as well as the prayer of Isaiah in chapter 64, here's what seems to be happening. In response to all of Isaiah's questions about God's silence, the Lord says that he has always been ready to be sought and to be found. And specifically in verse 1, he was ready to be found by nations other than Israel, those who had not called by his name, those, those not called by his name who did not ask for or seek after him. To them, he says, here I am. Here I am. I'm right here. But that call is not to the exclusion of Israel. He says of his people that his hands have been spread out and welcome to them all day long despite their rebellion. So Isaiah's sense from the previous chapter that the Lord was silent while a valid emotion was not a reality. Because the Lord is seen to be calling out to his people and to all nations, ready to be sought by them. The problem is that the nations in general and his people in particular have turned from him and chosen to walk down a path that is not good. Verse 2 says that they were following their own devices. Or another translation says they were pursuing their own imaginations. David Jackman insightfully writes this, pursuing their own imaginations is always the nub of the problem of human rebellion. We will not let God be God in our lives. We would much rather create our own fictional alternatives. That is why so many people still cling to the attitude, 
I like to think God is dot, dot, dot. Or more defiantly, I cannot believe in a God who is dot, dot, dot. As though personal capability was the measure of anything eternally significant. It's a strong word, isn't it? It's a timely one for each of us. Rebellion, then, is not letting God be God and deciding that he has to fit into some sort of category that we approve of or can understand. The result of that rebellion and of making God in our own image is then described in verses 3 through 5. These verses describe what our hearts will do if we do that. If we create God in our minds, and then we will also then decide what the right ways to worship and honor him are, and we will ignore his word. So what do the people of Israel do? They make sacrifices on unapproved altars. They eat food that God has forbidden. And all the while, they they hold a holier-than-thou attitude, not realizing that the smell of their offerings and the smell of their lives is not sweet to the Lord. It's putrid. It's offensive. It is smoke in his nostrils. Say you're at work or you're at school and you're given an assignment with specific instructions, rules that you are supposed to follow, but you decide that your way is better that you understand the assignment more fully than the person that's giving it, so you complete it according to your own rules. Well, then you shouldn't be surprised if you fail the assignment or you are fired from your job. And so too, when we make God in our own image and we worship him in ways contrary to his laws, we should not be surprised when he passes judgment or when he rejects that worship. And yet the pride of men and women is usually offended before it's humbled. Seeing all this, the Lord says in verse 6 that he will be silent no more. We know that he has not been silent. He, he is calling to his people. He's saying, here I am to everyone. His grace and mercy have not been silent, but his justice has. However, now he will repay the rebellion of all people, and the certainty of that judgment is communicated by the fact that it says that it is written before him. It is certain judgment, but it is also personal The offense against God was personal, and so the judgment that comes is personal, and he pours the payment for sin into the lap of those who insulted him. We're reminded yet again that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember, there's two paths, right? This is just one of those paths. God may not be a universalist saving all people, but he is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. He will bring eternal judgment. But now, now is the year of the Lord's favor. As he holds out before us life and death and he pleads with us, choose life, choose my ways. So before we see the joy of the future New Jerusalem, we're shown in verses 8 through 16, the fate of of God's servants in contrast to the fate of those who forsake him. The two ways sort of conflate together in these verses 8 through 16. And we see them side by side. Verses 8 through 16 show us this. The Lord controls the fate of his servants and of those who forsake him. The Lord controls the fate of his servants and of those who forsake him. Those in verses 1 through 7 all seem to be the ones who have rejected the Lord and chosen to foolishly make him in their own own image. But here we're introduced to a new group of people, not new to Isaiah, but new to this chapter, and it's, they're called the servants. It's a term that seems to be shorthand for the faithful remnant, those that were left that were trusting the Lord. 
the term servants then stands for those who have had their eyes open to the fact that the suffering servant is in fact the Messiah. The servants are those who choose to join the suffering servant and become servants themselves, servants of the Lord for his glory. These are the ones who listen to the Lord, who unlike those in verses 1 through 17, 1 through 7, submit to his will and submit to his ways. In verse 8, we see that the, the Lord does not destroy all, but those prized and highly valued like the wine made from the first drops of the juice of the clusters of grapes, these who are precious in God's sight, highly valued, are preserved. They are the children of Abraham, who Paul shows us are, in fact, children of faith. They are the chosen of the Lord, called to possess the mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion. And verse 10 shows us that the blessing that God's going to bring for this chosen group of servants will fill the land from, from Sharon in the west to Achor in the east. The land will no longer be filled with war. It's going to be filled with pasture lands and peace. However, that beauty and rest is not going to be the case for all. Those who have forsaken the Lord in verses 11 and 12, those who have, have worshipped the God of destiny are destined for judgment. The contrast between the, the faithful and the forsaken is, is strongest in verses 13 through 15. And it's very clear that the Lord's servants will eat and drink. They will rejoice and sing. They will be called by a new name of blessing. But his enemies, they will be hungry and thirsty, put to shame, crying out in pain. Their name will become a curse and death will swallow them up. But to the servants, the faithful remnant, remnant God is the God of truth. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. God keeps his word. He's the God of truth. And he has kept his word in sending Jesus. And he will keep his word when, he's, when Jesus comes again and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And when he does, we're told in verse 16, that God forgets all the former troubles. And they are hidden from his eyes. God forgets them. All the past troubles of, of this life are erased, not because they don't matter, but because they have no bearing on the future glory. This is what Motyer says, a simple statement, but a profound one. What is no longer valid before God has no ground of being. Something to chew on. What is no longer valid before God has no ground of being. These these former troubles are forgotten by God and therefore they fail to exercise any authority over God's new world that he's going to create. And so we see in verses 17 through 25 that the Lord is going to create something. The Lord will create a new Jerusalem and rejoice in his people. The Lord will create a new Jerusalem and rejoice in his people. Let's read this description. Some of the most beautiful words in Isaiah, which is saying something for all the beautiful words we found here. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. The Lord says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. For the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy 
and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall enjoy long the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The Lord will create a new Jerusalem and rejoice in his people. I've heard it said that part of the reason for Christmas traditions is that we are trying to recapture the joy of Christmas's past, especially those of when we were children. So if, if we eat the, the same food every year and we watch the same movies every year and we go to the same places every year, then maybe we can feel the same sense of wonder that we knew so many years ago. There could be something to that. I think most certainly Christmas is a time of longing, a time of nostalgia. But I wonder if it's not so much a longing for the past, but a longing for the future. As we get older, we can see through the facade of Christmas a little bit. And we wonder if there's maybe something more. We've talked in a similar way about heaven being our our true home. And how we're all longing for this home that we've never been to. That heaven is the the home that every other home that we've ever known points to. And here Isaiah gives us a, a glimpse of this place that we will one day walk into and finally be at home as children of our Father. So what's that place going to be like? This is the description of it. Verse 17 tells us, first of all, that it will be new. <laughs> it's going to be brand new. It's interesting, God is not going to redecorate or refurbish the present world. No, he's going to completely remake it. Such that not only will he forget all the former things, but so will we as his children. I think it's this, that the new heavens and the new earth, they will be a physical place and and we will have physical bodies, but the, the, the physical place and our physical bodies will be so very new And so very different that all of the former troubles and pain and heartache of this world, they won't even come into our mind because it will be so different and so new. Which is an amazing thing given the depth of some of the pain that we have faced. That we would forget all of those things. Again, not that they are insignificant, but rather that the newness and the wonder of this new place is so great that all of these other heartaches that we have felt are forgotten. The newness of the new Jerusalem will be so overwhelming that all of the former things, they're just going to fade away. 
In verse 17 through the first part of 19, we find the new heavens and earth will not only be new, but there'll be a place of rejoicing. That's the key word, I think, in those verses. Rejoicing. As God creates this new world, he has some criteria in mind for what's going to go into it. And you know what the main criteria is? Will this bring joy? <laughs> Will this bring joy to my people? And only the things that result in gladness are put into the new Jerusalem. And the gladness of God's people then overflows into God's own rejoicing. God himself rejoices at the new Jerusalem he has created. And he rejoices at the joy that his people receive from this new Jerusalem. In the same way that many of us are going to give a gift this Christmas that causes others to be filled with joy, and we are so filled with joy at the fact that they are filled with joy at what we have given them. But interestingly, the Lord doesn't emphasize what will be present in this new place that will bring us joy. Rather, he emphasizes what will be absent from this new world that will no longer steal or derail our joy. A reality of joy in this age is that it doesn't last. Do you feel that? It's always interrupted or it's it's tainted. It's it's just taken from us by some sort of darkness that invades our lives. The phone rings and it's bad news, or you miss a holiday, you gotta go to work, or the car breaks down on the way to visit your family. These things, they invade our joy. But there's a day coming when all of that darkness, large and small, is going to be gone forever. I want to talk to you about the things that aren't going to be there. And the things that are absent in the new heavens and the new earth, the first one may be the most important. No more death. No more death, verse 20. The poetic language of verse 20 can be a little bit confusing. Uh, what I, I don't believe it's communicated is that death will be in any part a part of the new world. But rather, Isaiah is speaking of the new life, the, the, the new life of, of this place in terms that sort of correspond to the present. Isaiah could have just written, there's not going to be any more death. <laughs> but Isaiah is a poet. And so he writes in poetry. And in, instead of just saying there will be no more death, he paints this picture of how new and different this place is going to be. And he does it by taking the heartaches of this world and saying that we will never again experience those things. No more death. Yes, but how can we understand that? This is what he says. He says, there will no longer be infants who are born and then die a few days later. No more stillbirths. No more miscarriages. No more birth defects and diseases that steal the joy of new life from us. No more tombstones where the birth year and the death year are the same. Never again. He says, there will no longer be an old man who we say was taken from us too soon. Because in many ways, death is always too soon, isn't it? Because death isn't the way that things are supposed to be. We are all too young to die. And in that place, we will be forever young. Isaiah says that if someone were to die at 100 years old in the new heavens and the new earth, then we would all be surprised. 
In this world, if you get to 100, you get to be on the news. <laughs> in the new heavens and the new earth, when you get to 100, no big deal. And the absence of death signals the absence of sin. That's that strange phrase, the sinner 100 years old shall be accursed. I think it's this idea that if someone somehow found sin in someone who was 100 years old, they would still be banished from that place. There's not going to be any sin. There's not even the hint of sin in this place. And that's why there's no death. One way to think about this is to say this. There's a day coming when the last person will die. And then death will be gone forever. This place of joy will also be a place not only where there's no more death, but there's also no more disappointment. No more disappointment. Imagine building a house only to find out after you moved in that your job has been transferred out of state. <laughs> or, or imagine you settle into a new home only to have it destroyed by a natural disaster or to have your family run out by an invading army. Can you imagine Think about maybe this spring, you decide to plant a beautiful garden and someone else eats all of the fruit of it, whether squirrels or neighbors. I don't know. Hopefully your neighbors wouldn't do that to you. But just imagine all the work and someone else eats it. Isaiah talks about a vineyard here. I don't know much about planting vineyards, but what I hear is that if you plant grapevines, it's going to take years and possibly decades before you can actually produce quality wine from those vines. So there's a risk involved in that undertaking. If you're going to do it, you got to hope you're going to be around for a little bit to taste the fruit of your labor. Or you might think in, in another way about planting an oak tree or even a, a redwood in your backyard, knowing that when you plant that, you're never really going to fully experience the joy of that tree in your lifetime. But not in the New Jerusalem. Because in the New Jerusalem, all the disappointment of not seeing things fully realized will be gone. In part because we will live, to, live forever, but also because it will never be disruptive. We will never be driven from that place. We will drink the wine of the vineyards that we plant, guaranteed, however long it takes the vines to mature. We will sit under the shade of the sequoias that we sow because our days will be like the days of a tree. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I never understood that trees died. I, I didn't have a concept for that. Now that I own a house with big trees, I realize that they do. I got to watch out for it. But the days, the days of a tree, a tree lives forever in my mind. And that's what we will live. We will plant trees and we will see them. Our labor will never be in vain and we will enjoy all of it with our children, the fruit of our work. No more death, no more disappointment, no more distance, no more distance. I think that's in verse 24. Specifically, no more distance between us and God. The, the questions you remember of Isaiah's prayer, those, those will be a thing of the past. We'll never ask those questions again because the Lord will answer us before we even ask him. The, the Spirit right now intercedes for us, which is an amazing thing. But in that day, the Lord will hear the prayers of our hearts completely and answer them fully before the words are even on our lips. We will never say, as we often say, that God feels far from us. We will never sense a dryness in our walk with Christ. 
There will no more be distance between us and the Father. He will always be near. No more death, no more disappointment, no more distance, no more destruction. We're told at the end there, no one will hurt or destroy another. Including wolves and lions. I mean, wolves and lions are defined by destruction, aren't they? That's what we know them as. But wolves and lions will no longer destroy. And in fact, they will be best friends with the lambs that they would have eaten in this world. Hang out with the lambs. And all the destruction and the decay of this place, this, this world. Just think about all the way that things are falling apart. All the way that things are being torn apart. Whether it's the way that your home is falling apart. Or whether you go around the city and you feel like things are falling into disrepair. Or whether it's even relationships that you feel are being torn apart and destroyed. None of that will be in the new kingdom. It will all be over. No more destruction. And it will stay that way because there will be no more deception. That's the last one. No more deception, which is probably not the best way to say it, but it begins with a D and I got on that string. So we could say maybe no more devil if you want him. But here's the point. It has to do with that snake. The dust shall be the serpent's food. The point is that that snake, the ancient serpent as he's called, the devil, will be humbled into the dust for all time. He will eat the dirt of death. And he will do it because Jesus, in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, has crushed his head into the ground through the victory of his cross and his resurrection. And he's going to cast him into the lake of fire on the last day. In fact, Jesus is the one who has brought us all of these things. Jesus has made it possible for the new kingdom to not have any of these things. There's going to be no more destruction because Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. There's going to be no more distance because by the blood of Jesus, we've been brought near to the Father. There's going to be no more disappointment because nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And because he is going to give us all the desires of our hearts when we call on him. And there will be no more death because Jesus has risen again as the first fruits of the resurrection, assuring us that if we believe in him, we will rise too. Who are you? If you're trusting in Christ, you're a child of God. You're a joint heir with Jesus. You're a spirit indwelt saint. And if that's who you are, then where do you belong? You belong here. You belong in the new heavens and the new earth. How new is this place? Now wonder we feel so out of place sometimes. Now wonder we feel so homeless in this world. If this is what we're made for, and it's so new that we won't even remember this place anymore, now wonder it feels so strange in this world. Now wonder we feel like we don't belong here because we don't. But it's where we are now. It's where we are now, and so for now, we walk the path of faith in the Lord until we finally are led into the forever rejoicing of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a place with no death, no disappointment, no distance, no destruction, no more deception, no more devil, no more sin. It's a place of perfect newness, 
It's a place of never-ending joy. Let's take a moment of silence and think on the beauty of our home. And then I will close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ who through his life and his death and his resurrection has made it possible that we can be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we are um, we're so aware of all of the pain in this world, all the death and the destruction and the division and the the way that the world and the flesh and the devil fight against us. And we do feel so homeless sometimes because, Lord, you've made us for this place. Lord, help us to walk by faith until you call us home. Help us to show forth the beauty of the kingdom until we are there forever. Lord, fill us with a, a vision of who we are in Christ and also a vision for the home that is ours so that we might live in expectation of it. I pray, Lord, for any who are not your children, who are your enemies in this, according to this passage, Lord, that you would draw them to salvation so that they might come to you. Lord, you're calling out, here I am, here I am. I pray that we would all come to you so that we might know the joys of this heavenly home. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.